Hello, and welcome to This is Growing Old, a podcast from the Alliance for Aging Research. I'm Sue Peshin, President and CEO of the Alliance for Aging Research, and today I'm thrilled to be talking with Lance Robertson, who serves as both Assistant Secretary for Aging and Administration for Community Living Administrator about COVID-19's impact on older adults. Lance, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Sue. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) Lance, for folks out there who may not be familiar with the agency, can you please tell us about the Administration for Community Living and your dual roles there as Administrator and Assistant Secretary for Aging? Well, absolutely. And yes, I'm very honored to serve in both capacities. Just quickly for Anyone that's interested, the assistant secretary role is a Senate-confirmed role, and of course, it's the administration's lead position uh, for working on behalf of older Americans. So, uh, you know, really in this role, I'm the voice for older Americans when it comes to policy decisions, particularly within federal government conversations, and that's similar to how most assistant secretary roles work. So, again, that's a real honor, real privilege for a guy that's, you know, been a gerontologist and has worked in this space his, his entire career. And then, of course, as an administrator, that gives me the um, authority and the responsibility for running a federal agency, which of course is the administration for community living. And I can bleed into answering that question for you too, Sue. That sounds great. All right. So the administration for community living, I think is just one of the best federal agencies out there. We are pretty new, but um, you know, we're so excited, I think, to have a mission that really touches everyone. Our Our mission is to, of course, in every possible way, support older Americans and people with disabilities with the ability to live in the community, which, of course, we all know that's most everyone's choice, and it's such a win-win. And, of course, that objective, I believe, has really never been more important in the history of our country. Um, We were actually born in 2014, thanks to Congress, and they brought together all the different programs that served older adults and um, under one roof added a variety of programs that serve um, people with disabilities, and then a number of specialty programs. So we have about 36 different programs, roughly, that we're responsible for. And uh, we are part of the Department of Health and Human Services. So for people that understand federal government structure, um, HHS has about 11 different agencies, which you could you know, call a bit business, if you will. Each, each of the 11 is their own standalone agency or business under the $1.4 trillion HHS. But again, our focus is um, very exclusively directed at supporting older adults and people with disabilities. We have about a $2.5 billion budget. Um, now it's quite a bit more than that, It's, which I know we'll talk about in a moment. It's closer to $4 billion now and uh, through the supplemental funding for COVID. So those dollars go directly from us. Um, we don't do direct service work. So those dollars go directly to the states and local communities and specialty programs. So we we do so many different things, Sue, that I know your listeners would um, be pleased to know about, you know, senior meals and nutrition services, the Centers for Independent Living, which help people with disabilities live independently in the community, home and community-based services. We operate the Ombudsman Program, which helps make sure that quality care happens in nursing homes. Um, Then, of course, services like transportation and caregiver support, uh, traumatic brain injury, limb loss, Alzheimer's, community transitions, volunteerism, grandparents raising grandchildren, home modification, protection and advocacy, uh, programs like the SHIP program, which really is 
an information counselor um, type program, No Wrong Door, which helps people access information. And then another bucket that we're really proud of, Sue, is the research work we do. We have a $100 million research institute that's part of um, ACL, which really permits us to flex a little bit of our muscle in that and those important conversations as well. So you can see, I mean, there's a lot there. Those are just examples, but we're just so proud of what we're able to do. Uh, we have a very streamlined network that we support across the country, about 22,000 providers. So, you know, a lot of federal agencies struggle a bit because there's such enormity to what they offer. And while we do a lot, thankfully, we sort of have a streamlined system. So really through um, oftentimes a single phone number or website, people can gain information to um, or gain the information they need to make critical decisions. So, you know, our website, Sue, I know you've been on it and those that have an opportunity, it's just acl.gov, acl.gov, fabulously informative. Um, more user-friendly, I think, than you'll find with some federal sites, so I'm, I'm pleased to say that. And then, of course, for a lot of folks on the aging side, um, it's our elder care locator number, a national uh, number, toll-free, that people can call and, and uh, get access to that information as well. So you have the online as well as the phone option as well. That's awesome. Thank you so much for that great overview because there's a ton of stuff that happens at the community level that you all coordinate and fund and make sure is running well for people. And a lot of folks don't even realize where it comes from. So that's what today's about. So I am grateful that you're here. Um, so the coronavirus has upended everything we do. And it's obviously been a major exercise in crisis management. And I'm sure you have a very long list, but we want to know what your short list version is of issues for the agency and for you as the leader that are keeping you up at night. Yeah, great question, Sue, and thank you. I, I would say that my short list would be about uh, half a dozen or so issues that I can just quickly touch on that I believe will resonate with your listeners because they honestly are issues that are confronting and challenging us each day um, as a country. But again, I'm just so proud of the resiliency of our network and how hard people are working to really push through this unprecedented time. Um, so I, I would say the first thing for me that really remains a priority that does stress me is how do we continue to permit state flexibility? Because as you know, Sue, most of the response, of course, is state driven. Um, the good saying about you know, emergency response is uh, locally executed, state managed, and federally supported. So as the federal partner, how do we continue to offer those state flexibilities without just throwing the baby out with the bathwater? You know, we have to make sure that there is some reasonableness to what we can permit states to do. But, you know, knock on wood so far, I, I just have loved how responsive states have been. And I think the innovation we're seeing is to be supported and heralded. And, you know, the big question is, again, what do we do post-COVID? How, how many of these flexibilities should we permit to stay in place? Mm -hmm. um, a second a second big issue, of course, involves the money. Um, as, as of today, we've, through the supplementals, have pushed out about $1.2 billion, maybe some more coming soon. And, you know, how do we make sure that that money moves? Um, for us, it's how do we make sure it gets to the local level? Because as you know, through our structure, it's really that local level service provider who needs those dollars quickly. 
So I'm proud that as the federal partner, we got those dollars pushed out in record time. I think many states also are getting those dollars pushed down to the local level quickly. But again, as you know, as every state differs and some require, as an example, legislative authorities, you know, how do we make sure that there's not too much of a lag time between the federal government appropriating those dollars and giving them to us and they get to the local level? And then I think speaking of money, a third worry for me is what happens when the money dries up? You know, those supplemental dollars are limited, and we do have, thankfully, a lot more people, as one example, on the senior side that we're feeding. So what happens when the money dries up? Do we simply tell them, hey, no more no more money for the meal we've been providing? We're so sorry. We've got to think through as a network what our options might be in that respect. And then quickly, I would say on the back half, you know, the as we've all been following and monitoring the issues around nursing home care, that that really has just become such a challenge, not only with the contraction of the virus, but how how it's being managed to assure that residents are permitted, you know, access to family members, vice versa. How mm-hmm. do we take care of our ombudsman needs, et cetera? Um, another big bucket of issues, of course, involves reopening, which is timely. That's a big conversation right now. And, you know, that varies from state to state. So I was, as a quick example, talking with a colleague, a state unit director in South Carolina, whose border states are opening before her and putting a lot of pressure on her. And what about residents that live close to the border and may cross over and, you know, then come back? And <laughs> what does all that mean? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a big issue. And then I think the final thing that keeps me up, Sue, is just making sure that our populations, older adults and people with disabilities, are not marginalized through COVID and post-COVID because, you know, a lot of the guidance that's given is much more generalized to the American population, not often fully recognizing some of the things that we got to really be careful about when it comes to vulnerable populations such as older adults and people with disabilities. Yeah, that's really that's really helpful to hear and just to learn about the things that you're struggling with because I think, you know, there's a lot of people out there that want to try to help. And so my next question is actually around that, which is what are some of the key issues that you think the public might not be familiar with regarding the pandemic experience for older adults and people with disabilities that you really want people to know that we should all know? And are there things that those of us at home can be doing to help? Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, several things come to mind. Um, I do think it's important for people to, to know, to acknowledge that, of course, we're all in this together. We're hearing that pretty commonly now. But for us and the service delivery that we're responsible for, it really is about the blending of our population. So people tend to think older adults on the left side and people with disabilities on the right side. But as you know, Sue, people with disabilities are growing older. We have a lot more people now, roughly 30% of our American elder population live with one or more disabilities. And what does that look like in terms of how we have to delicately blend services and create a more effective conversation in that respect? Um, for me, my soapbox issue, my second item will be this, Sue, uh, and that's an acknowledgement that the critical work that we do is always important. It's not just during the pandemic. For better or worse, older adults and people with disabilities, vulnerable, vulnerable populations have become um, you know, a bit of a focus because of the contraction rate. But, but to be honest, they're the all all the folks, whether it's the family or or the government systems, are all grateful for the work we do now. But I don't want that 
appreciation to to um, go away post-COVID. So we need to make sure that people understand and see the value in what we do through, you know, alleviating food insecurity by providing nutritious meals. And when we operate those centers for independent living, we're helping people with disabilities be functional and independent in the community. And you know, so many different things we do around social isolation and mental health and all of that, in my argument, um, both preceded and will certainly outlive any sort of COVID-19 conversation. So that's the big second thing I would say. And then finally, to your point about what could we all do, just as the most simple example, we can all be champions in fighting social isolation. As we see this quarantine stretch now from weeks into months and so many older adults and people with disabilities who um, really are experiencing that loneliness, that isolation. And, and I think it's such an easy thing for all of us to be a part of in terms of the remedy, you know, just reaching out, making sure that loved ones, older adults and, and folks that we know are um, getting some regular check-ins by phone or by technology or by knocking on the window or whatever you can do safely. Um, we just all have to make sure that we're taking care of those individuals. And then also, as we know, caregivers, we got to make sure caregivers aren't getting burned out. So many of these caregivers, Sue, you know, mm -hmm. they're caring for an older adult, but maybe now they're homeschooling. And they're mm -hmm. teleworking. So all of these sorts of things are challenges. But yet again, I think we can all step in and play a role. So uh, that's, that, that's how I'd answer that question. That's great. That is so great because it really is all about community and what we can do to help each other. We all need each other more than ever right now. Um, so this actually goes into my next question quite well on, on mental health issues. And on May 7th, uh, the ACL joined with SAMHSA, the Veterans Health Administration, and the National Coalition on Mental Health and Aging, which the Alliance is a part of, for National Older Adult Mental Health Awareness Day. How has the pandemic, do you think, put a spotlight on the mental health of older adults? And you mentioned that a little bit, but I was wondering if there was anything else. And do you feel like there are any aspects to growing older that are actually helpful to mental health that younger people can learn from? Mm, yeah, that's a that's a great, um, really bifurcated question there. There's a couple different pieces to that. And you're right. I mean, certainly there's been an increased awareness of what the impact of social isolation can do to one's health. And I think that's kind of that first part of your question. And and by the way, the, the webinar last week, I thought went really well. We had about somewhere around 3,500 participants. Um, it's the third year in a row that we partnered with SAMHSA. So, um, you know, again, I, I'm just proud when we're able to push some of that information out and, and help better educate and make people aware of what's happening um, in terms of federal government programs, but then also how we can all be attuned to our needs and, and those that we love and care for. Uh, so, yeah, to your to your question, you know, we're all aware of the difficulties um, that accompany um, um, those mental health issues that so many people do struggle with. And sometimes that includes even obtaining services, particularly during a crisis, as you know, for a lot of folks that have been struggling with mental health illness um, of late for the past quarter, a lot of their um, treatment has had to be done using technology, which is probably not as preferable sometimes as being actually you know, um, in a position to be able to physically go uh, to counseling or, or to support group. But again, people are working through that and, and I'm proud of that. I, I also think, Sue, and I know you'll appreciate this too, we have to remind people that, um, 
you know, behavioral health problems really, that's not a normal part of aging. And mm-hmm. I'm afraid, I'm afraid that as people stereotype older adults, they, they tend to think, oh yeah, you know, uh, mental health issues inevitably come because they're getting older and they're getting sad because of their physical failings or, you know, the loss of relationships or all these other variables. And they sort of presume that, you know, um, behavioral health problems are, are a part of normal aging. And I would say that's not the case. And, um, mm-hmm. You know, we, we really, though, have to, I think, appreciate that. So, you know, for us, it is about making sure people have access to the resources that they need. Um, you know, I, I think if I were to give advice to folks, and I'm not the expert, but certainly when it comes to your mental health, people often overlook the importance of focusing on your overall health. So it really also is about what are you doing physically to make sure that your body's in good shape and then certainly um, mentally, but, you know, I'd even add spiritually, you know, what, where is, what's your anchor look like, whether you're a person of faith or not. And, um, you know, for a lot of people, it's that connection, appreciating that connection between physical and mental health. Obviously, the healthier you can be physically, the more likely you're going to be to be resilient mentally. And, and you know, mm-hmm. that also includes avoiding poor health choices. You know, we still have too many smokers and people that probably drink a little too much and then some people that use illicit drugs and none of those things are, are good for you physically or mentally. And, you know, exercise is important. Um, I even think mental exercise is just so overlooked and, and its value and whether that's some of the arts or reading or other things that you can do to really challenge your mind, we, we got to work that, that, uh, that part of our body as well. And, and then I think another key aspect is social. You know, how engaged are you outside of the home? And I think for so many people, we're just so busy, Sue, you know, our relationships are pretty limited. You know, it's the people we associate with very briefly at work, and it's what we can offer at home. But so often relationships are stimulating. And, you know, as long as you avoid the bad ones, um, you know, what can you do? (laughs) Yeah, what what can you do to really grow your portfolio of people that you have a a decent relationship with? And um, anyway, so... You know, and, and I also think, I mean, let's acknowledge that those those situations for some still will occur. So the sooner, though, that you can acknowledge that and seek out resources, the better. And, you know, I think uh, I think just generally speaking, in terms of all services, and I know this having done this for, you know, two and a half decades, far too many people come to us for help when it's far too late. And I think with um, any sort of mental health illness, the quicker we can get in front of that, the better. I agree. That's great. Good. Um, so what what do you see happening in the coming months that we should be doing at both the societal and the community-based level to make sure that um, uh, the safety and the well-being of our older adults is, uh, is in full force? So, you know, I, I think that of a number of things I'd like to quickly point out. I think it starts with respecting an individual's choice. You know, we're in still a very um, peculiar time where, you know, again, some states are reopening and and some folks are permitted now to really socialize in a broader way than they have in recent months. And, you know, I think we just have to respect individuals' choices in that regard, particularly those that may have some vulnerability with their health. And, you know, if they don't want to get out, we don't need to make them feel like they need to, or conversely, if they feel like they can safely get out and um, socialize, so be it. Um, that's one big thing. I think another thing is we've got to continue as a society and certainly as the federal government to support home and community-based service systems. I mean, we, like we talked about a little bit ago, um, there is a cycle to some of this and we don't want 
in the months to come for there to be a drop off in the amount of support that we have. And I'm not just talking, you know, financially, but just in terms of the support needed to make sure that people appreciate and value things like, you know, nutrition and transportation services and, and all the different things our network does. Um, you know, I, I think also how we manage this nursing home situation over the next quarter is going to be absolutely critical. I'm proud that CMS has stood up the or is standing up the coronavirus commission on safety and quality in nursing homes. Um, we're doing some stuff around that space as well. There's such an urgency there. And as we all know, not just because of the contraction rate, but just, you know, those residents must be insulated and protected in a way for their own well-being, not just from the virus, but from all sorts of other challenges that can be experienced in a setting like that. Um, and I also think, you know, the, the right safety measures for the situation, we keep pushing, as you know, day in and day out for, you know, PPE prioritization. And I think where that makes sense, we're going to keep championing that because we got to make sure that we're protecting older adults and people with disabilities from uh, the virus. And then transitioning is another issue. I think there'll be a lot of people who are going to be transitioning, whether it's from, Mm-hmm. You know, a different home where they were maybe perceived to have been safer to their own home or maybe from a facility to their own home. So a lot of transitioning that I think will take place in the coming quarter that we need to be uh, ready for. I'll just end answering this question by saying I really hope, Sue, and I know you feel the same way. I hope that the tremendous kindness that I've seen during this virus um remains deeply rooted in who we are as a culture. I, I just am so, it's so heartwarming to see how far people now will go to help others. And we don't need a virus to be like that. It certainly I know. prompts yeah. it, but but let's make this a regular sort of thing. Let's make checking on our neighbors and, you know, going and getting the groceries for an older adult. Why does that have to happen just during a virus? You know, let's, let's get in the habit of doing these things on a regular basis moving forward. I, I love it. Yeah, you are preaching to the choir, as you know. But I think all the, our listeners could use that. And it's so true. It's like sometimes it, it does take a problem, you know, for us to recognize what's really, really important. And we need this to stick. Um, so for sure. So I am pivoting to something a little bit more lighthearted. And I want to ask you a question about when you were a kid. What did you imagine growing older would be like? <laughs> well, I think in in many respects, the common answer you get from from people who are honest is that you know you sort of um, you sort of worried about what that might look like. But um, thankfully, I was raised by my grandparents, as you know, Sue. So for me, my role models already were older adults who exemplified. Um, what the beauty of life can be as you age. And, you know, even as they were my caregiver, and then later on when I became their caregiver, um, caregiver uh, for both grandparents, you know, it just really was, um, for me, a reinforcement of how this, this, um, this span of life that we're all blessed to be able to have may look a little different at different age stages, but at the same time, there's so much beauty and value in each. And I know for me, you know, as a young person looking at that, I I knew that I looked forward to shifting from, you know, dependence to independence so that as an older adult, I really would have the ability to make more decisions and to control some aspects of my life. And I looked forward to that. And, you know, I also, I'm a giver. So I really looked forward, even as a young person, to being able to be a giver rather than to taker, because as a young person, you're inherently dependent. So, yes. you know, that was something that I looked forward to. And then I think the last couple of things for me, I, I know 
um, looking back that this really was a big driver for me. I wanted to be a, a powerful and positive influencer. And I knew at some point as I grew older, that opportunity would arrive. So I'm very blessed when big and small things happen where I can help influence others. Um, and then finally making your mark. I mean, we're, we're all here for a limited time. So what is it we're doing and what we, what are we investing in that makes a difference? And, you know, again, for me, it's, it's family and, and the service that I'm able to, to now do through federal work, but, um, friendships and all of those things, I think just really have, even from a young person, I have looked forward to that. And now that I'm older, um, I'm appreciating and relishing every moment. That's awesome. I love it. Those are great answers. And I totally think you met your goal. I think it's amazing that you had that passion as a younger person, and you've just led a life of service. And we're so grateful for that. So thank you. Um, I want to thank you so much for this wonderful conversation and for joining us on This is Growing Old. Uh, We encourage our listeners to learn more about ACL by visiting acl.gov. They also have a great COVID-19 resource page that I encourage you to click on, and it's right on their homepage. Lance, is there anything else you want people to know about on the website? No, it's a great resource. I do hope people will visit. Okay, that's all for this week's episode. Please join us in two weeks for our conversation with Sandy Markwood, who serves as Chief Executive Officer of the National Association of Area Agencies on Aging. And we ask you to visit us at agingresearch.org to learn more about age-related conditions, diseases, and issues that impact the health of older Americans. Thank you all for joining us.